Section 8 of Inquiry Concerning Political Justice and Its Influence on Morals and Happiness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Inquiry Concerning Political Justice and its influence on morals and happiness by william godwin book one chapter five part one chapter five the voluntary actions of men originate in their opinions if by the reasons already given we have removed the supposition of any original bias in the mind that is inaccessible to human skill and shown that the defects to which we are now subject are not irrevocably entailed upon us there is another question of no less importance to be decided before the ground can appear to be sufficiently cleared for political melioration there is a doctrine the advocates of which have not been less numerous than those for innate principles and instincts teaching that the conduct of human beings in many important particulars is not determined upon any grounds of reasoning and comparison but by immediate and irresistible impression in defiance of the conclusions and conviction of the understanding man is a compound being say the favourers of this hypothesis made up of powers of reasoning and powers of sensation these two principles are in perpetual hostility and as reason will in some cases subdue all the allurements of sense so there are others in which the headlong impulses of sense will for ever defeat the tardy decisions of judgment he that should attempt to regulate man entirely by his understanding and supersede the irregular influences of material excitement or that should imagine it practicable by any process and in any length of time to reduce the human species under the influence of general truth would show himself profoundly ignorant of some of the first laws of our nature footnote objections have been started to the use of the word truth in this absolute construction as if it implied in the mind of the writer the notion of something having an independent and separate existence whereas nothing can be more certain than that truth that is affirmative and negative propositions has strictly no existence but in the mind of him who utters or hears it but these objections seem to have been taken up too hastily it cannot be denied that there are some propositions which are believed for a time and afterwards refuted and others such as the most of the theorems of mathematics and many of those of natural philosophy respecting which there is no probability that they will ever be refuted every subject of inquiry is susceptible to affirmation and negation and those propositions concerning it which describe the real relations of things may in a certain sense whether we be or be not aware that they do so be said to be true taken in this sense truth is immutable he that speaks of its immutability does nothing more than predict with greater or less probability and say this is what i believe 
and what all reasonable beings till they shall first fall short of me in their degree of information will continue to believe End footnote. this doctrine which in many cases has passed so current as to be thought scarcely a topic for examination is highly worthy of a minute analysis if true it is no less than the doctrine of innate principles opposes a bar to the efforts of philanthropy and the improvement of social institutions certain it is that our prospects of amelioration depend upon the progress of inquiry and the general advancement of knowledge if therefore there be points and those important ones in which so to express myself knowledge and the thinking principle in man cannot be brought into contact if however great be the improvement of his reason he will not the less certainly in many cases act in a way irrational and absurd this consideration must greatly overcloud the prospect of the moral reformer there is another consequence that will flow from the vulgarly received doctrine upon this subject if man be by the very constitution of his nature the subject of opinion and if truth and reason when properly displayed give us a complete hold upon his choice then the search of the political inquirer will be much simplified then we have only to discover what form of civil society is most conformable to reason and we may rest assured that as soon as men shall be persuaded from conviction to adopt that form they will have acquired to themselves an invaluable benefit but if reason be frequently inadequate to its task if there be an opposite principle in man resting upon its own ground and maintaining a separate jurisdiction the most rational principles of society may be rendered abortive it may be necessary to call in mere sensible causes to encounter causes of the same nature folly may be the fittest instrument to effect the purposes of wisdom and vice to disseminate and establish the public benefit in that case the salutary prejudices and useful delusions as they have been called of aristocracy the glittering diadem the magnificent canopy the ribbons stars and titles of an illustrious rank may at last be found the fittest instruments for guiding and alluring to his proper ends the savage man such is the nature of the question to be examined and such its connection with the inquiry concerning the influence of political institutions the more accurately to conceive the topic before us it is necessary to observe that it relates to the voluntary actions of man the distinction between voluntary and involuntary action if properly stated is exceedingly simple that action is involuntary which takes place in us either without foresight on our part or contrary to the full bent of our inclinations thus if a child or person of mature age burst into tears in a matter unexpected or unforeseen by himself or if he burst into tears though his pride or any other principle make him exert every effort to restrain them this action is involuntary voluntary action is where the event is foreseen previously to its occurrence 
and the hope or fear of that event forms the excitement or as it is most frequently termed the motive inducing us if hope be the passion to endeavor to forward and if fear to endeavor to prevent it it is this motion this manner generated to which we annex the idea of voluntariness let it be observed that the word action is here used in the sense of natural philosophers as descriptive of a change taking place in any part of the universe without entering into the question whether that change be necessary or free now let us consider what are the inferences that immediately result from the above simple and unquestionable explanation of voluntary action voluntary action is accompanied with foresight the hope or fear of a certain event is its motive but foresight is not an affair of simple immediate impulse it implies a series of observations so extensive as to enable us from like antecedents to infer like consequence voluntary action is occasioned by the idea of consequences to result wine is set before me and i fill my glass i do this either because i foresee that the flavor will be agreeable to my palate or that its effect will be to produce gaiety and exhilaration or that my drinking it will prove the kindness and good humor i feel towards the company with which i am engaged if in any case my action in filling dwindle into mechanical and semi-mechanical done with little or no adverting of the mind to its performance it so far becomes an involuntary action but if every voluntary action be performed for the sake of its consequences then in every voluntary action there is comparison and judgment every such action proceeds upon the apprehended truth of some proposition the mind decides this is good or desirable and immediately upon that decision if accompanied with a persuasion that we are competent to accomplish this good or desirable things the limbs proceed to their office the mind decides this is better than something else either wine or cordials are before me and i choose the wine rather than the cordials or why the wine is only presented or thought of and i decide that to take the wine is better than to abstain from it thus it appears that in every voluntary action there is preference or choice which indeed are synonymous terms this full elucidation of the nature of voluntary action enables us to proceed a step further hence it appears that the voluntary actions of men in all cases originate in their opinions the actions of men it will readily be admitted originate in the state of their minds immediately previous to those actions actions therefore which are preceded by a judgment this is good or this is desirable originate in the state of judgment or opinion upon that subject it may happen that the opinion may be exceedingly fugitive it may have been preceded by aversion and followed by remorse but it was unquestionably the opinion of the mind at the instant in which the action commenced it is by no means uninstructive to remark 
how those persons who seem most to have discarded the use of their reason have frequently fallen by accident as it were upon important truths there has been a set of christians who taught that the only point which was to determine the future everlasting happiness or misery of mankind was their faith being pressed with the shocking immorality of their doctrine and the cruel and tyrannical character yet imputed to the author of the universe some of the most ingenious of them have explained themselves thus quote, man is made up of two parts his internal sentiments and his external conduct between these two there is a close and indissoluble connection as are his sentiments so is his conduct faith that faith which alone entitles to salvation is indeed a man's opinion but not every opinion he may happen openly to profess not every opinion which floats idly in his brain and is only recollected when he is gravely questioned upon the subject faith is the opinion that is always present to the mind that lives in the memory or at least infallibly suggests itself when any article of conduct is considered with which it is materially connected faith is that strong permanent and lively persuasion of the understanding with which no delusive temptations will ever be able successfully to contend faith modifies the conduct gives a new direction to the dispositions and renders the whole character pure and heavenly but heavenly dispositions only can fit a man for the enjoyment of heaven heaven in reality is not so properly a place as a state of the mind and if a wicked man could be introduced into the society of saints made perfect he would be miserable god therefore when he requires faith alone as a qualification for heaven is so far from being arbitrary that he merely executes the laws of reason and does the only thing it was possible for him to do in this system there are enormous absurdities but the view it exhibits of the source of voluntary action sufficiently corresponds with the analysis we have given the subject the author of the characteristics has illustrated this branch of the nature of man in a very masterly manner he observes quote, there are few who think always consistently or according to one certain hypothesis upon any subject so abstruse and intricate as the cause of all things and the economy or government of the universe for it is evident in the case of the most devout people even by their own confession that there are times when their faith hardly can support them in the belief of a supreme wisdom and that they are often tempted to judge disadvantageously of a providence and just administration in the whole that alone therefore is to be called a man's opinion which is of any other the most habitual to him and occurs upon most occasions so that it is hard to pronounce certainly of any man that he is an atheist because unless his whole thoughts are at all seasons and on all occasions steadily bent against all supposition or imagination of design in things he is no perfect atheist in the same manner if a man's thoughts are not at all times steady and resolute against all imagination of chance fortune 
or ill design in things. He is no perfect theist. But if anyone believes more of chance and confusion than of design, he is to be esteemed more an atheist than a theist. This is surely not a very accurate or liberal view of the atheistical system. From that which most predominates or has the ascendant, and, in case he believes more of the prevalency of an ill-designing principle than of a good one, he is rather a demonist, and may be justly so called from the side to which the balance of his judgment most inclines. From this view of the subject we shall easily be led to perceive how little the fact of the variableness and inconstancy of human conduct is compatible with the principle here delivered, that the voluntary actions of men in all cases originate in their opinions. The persuasion that exists in the mind of the drunkard in committing his first act of intoxication, that in so doing he complies with the most cogent and irresistible reasons capable of being assigned upon the subject, may be exceedingly temporary. But it is the clear and unequivocal persuasion of his mind at the moment that he determines upon the action. The thoughts of the murderer will frequently be in a state of the most tempestuous fluctuation. He may make and unmake his diabolical purpose fifty times in an hour. His mind may be torn a thousand ways by terror and fury, malignity and remorse. But whenever his resolution is formed, it is formed upon the suggestions of the rational faculty and when he ultimately works up his mind to the perpetration, he is then most strongly impressed with the superior recommendations of the conduct he pursues. One of the fallacies by which we are most frequently induced to a conduct which our habitual judgment disapproves is that our attention becomes so engrossed by a particular view of the subject as wholly to forget, for the moment, those considerations which at other times were accustomed to determine our opinion. In such cases it frequently happens that the neglected consideration recurs the instant the hurry of action has subsided, and we stand astonished at our own infatuation and folly. This reasoning, however clear and irresistible it may appear, is yet exposed to one very striking objection. According to the ideas here delivered, men always proceed in their voluntary actions upon judgments extant to their understanding. Such judgments must be attended with consciousness, and were this hypothesis a sound one, nothing could be more easy than for a man in all cases to assign a precise reason that induced him to any particular action. The human mind would then be a very simple machine, always aware of the grounds upon which it proceeded, and self-deception would be impossible. But this statement is completely in opposition to experience and history. Ask a man the reason why he puts on his clothes, why he eats his dinner, or performs any other ordinary action of his life. He immediately hesitates, endeavors to recollect himself, and often assigns a reason the most remote from what the true philosophy of motive would have led us to expect. Nothing is more clear than that the moving cause of this action was not expressly present to his apprehension 
at the time he performed it. Self-deception is so far from impossible that it is one of the most ordinary phenomena with which we are acquainted. Nothing is more usual than for a man to impute his actions to honorable motives when it is nearly demonstrable that they flowed from some corrupt and contemptible source. On the other hand, many persons suppose themselves to be worse than an impartial spectator will find any good reason to believe them. A penetrating observer will frequently be able to convince his neighbor that upon such an occasion he was actuated by the motives very different from what he imagined. Philosophers to this hour dispute whether human beings in their most virtuous exertions are under the power of disinterested benevolence or merely of an enlightened self-interest. Here, then, we are presented in one or other of these sets of philosophers with a striking instance of men's acting from motives diametrically opposite to those which they suppose to be the guides of their conduct. Self-examination is to a proverb one of the most arduous of these tasks which true virtue imposes. Are not these facts in express contradiction to the doctrine that the voluntary actions of men in all cases originate in the judgments of the understanding? Undoubtedly, the facts which have been here enumerated appear to be strictly true. To determine how far they affect the doctrine of the present chapter, it is necessary to return to our analysis of the phenomena of the human mind. Hitherto, we have considered the actions of human beings only under two classes, voluntary and involuntary. In strictness, however, there is a third class which belongs to neither, yet partakes of the nature of both. We have already defined voluntary action to be that of which certain consequences foreseen and considered either as objects of desire or aversion are the motive foresight and volition are inseparable but what is foreseen must by the very terms be present to the understanding every action therefore so far as it is perfectly voluntary flows solely from the decision of the judgment but the actions above cited such as relate to our garments and our food are only imperfectly voluntary in respect to volition there appear to be two stages in the history of the human mind. Foresight is the result of experience, therefore foresight, and by parity of reasoning volition, cannot enter into the earliest actions of a human being. As soon, however, as the infant perceives the connection between certain attitudes and gestures, and the circumstance of receiving suck, for example, he is brought to desire those preliminaries for the sake of that result. Here, so far as relates to volition and the judgment of the understanding, the action is as simple as can well be imagined. Yet even in this instance, the motive may be said to be complex. Habit or custom has its share. This habit is founded in actions originally involuntary and mechanical, and modifies, after various methods, such of our actions as are voluntary. But there are habits of a second sort. 
in proportion as our experience enlarges the subjects of voluntary action become more numerous in this state of the human being he soon comes to perceive a considerable similarity between situation and situation in consequence he feels inclined to abridge the process of deliberation and to act to-day conformably to the determination of yesterday thus the understanding fixes for itself resting-places is no longer a novice and is not at the trouble continually to go back and revise the original reasons which determined it to be a course of action thus the man acquires habits from which it is very difficult to wean him and which he obeys without being able to assign either to himself or to others any explicit reason for this proceeding this is the history of prepossession and prejudice let us consider how much there is of voluntary and how much of involuntary in the species of action let the instance be of a man going to church to-day he has been accustomed suppose to a certain routine of this kind from his childhood most undoubtedly then in performing this action to-day his motive does not singly consist of inducements present to his understanding this distribution is in substance the same as that of hartley but is here introduced without any intention to adopt the peculiarities of his phraseology his feelings are not of the same nature as those of a man who would be persuaded by a train of reasoning to perform that function for the first time in his life his case is partly similar to that of a scholar who has gone through a course of geometry and who now believes the truth of the propositions upon the testimony of his memory though the proofs are by no means present in his understanding thus the person in question is partly induced to go to church by reasons which once appeared sufficient to his understanding and the effects of which remain though the reasons are now forgotten or at least not continually recollected he goes partly for the sake of decorum character and to secure the goodwill of his neighbours a part of his inducement also perhaps is that his parents accustomed him to go to church at first from the mere force of authority and that the omission of a habit to which we have been formed is apt to sit awkwardly and uneasily upon the human mind thus it happens that a man who should scrupulously examine his own conduct in going to church would find great difficulty in satisfying his mind as to the precise motive or proportion contributed by different motives which maintain his adherence to that practice it is probable however that when he goes to church he determines that his action is right proper or expedient referring for the reasons which prove this rectitude or expediency to the complex impression which remains in his mind from the inducements that at different times inclined him to that practice it is still more reasonable to believe that when he sets out there is an express volition foresight or apprehended motive inducing him to that particular action and that he proceeds in such a direction because he knows it leads to the church now so much of this action as proceeds from actually existing foresight and apprehended motive 
it is proper to call perfectly voluntary so much as proceeds upon a motive out of sight and the operation of which depends upon habit is imperfectly voluntary this sort of habit however must be admitted to retain something of the nature of voluntariness for two reasons first it proceeds upon judgment or apprehended motives though the reasons of that judgment be out of sight and forgotten at the time the individual performed the first action of the kind his proceeding was perfectly voluntary secondly the custom of language authorizes us in denominating every action as in some degree voluntary which a volition foresight or apprehended motive in a contrary direction might have prevented from taking place perhaps no action of a man arrived at years of maturity is in the sense above defined perfectly voluntary as there is no demonstration in the higher branches of the mathematics which contains the whole of its proof within itself and does not depend upon former propositions the proofs of which are not present to the mind of the learner the subtlety of the human mind in this respect is incredible many single actions if carefully analyzed and traced to their remotest source would be found to be the complex result of different motives to the amount perhaps of some hundreds in the meantime it is obvious to remark that the perfection of the human character consists in approaching as nearly as possible to the perfectly voluntary state we ought to be upon all occasions prepared to render a reason for our actions we should remove ourselves to the furthest distance from the state of mere inanimate machines acted upon by causes of which they have no understanding we should be cautious of thinking it a sufficient reason for an action that we are accustomed to performing it and that we once thought it right the human understanding has so powerful a tendency to improvement that it is more than probable that in many instances the arguments which once appeared to us sufficient would upon re-examination appear inadequate and futile we should therefore subject them to perpetual revisal in our speculative opinions and our practical principles we should never consider the book of inquiry as shut we should accustom ourselves not to forget the reasons that produced our determination but be ready upon all occasions clearly to announce and fully to enumerate them having thus explained the nature of human actions involuntary imperfectly voluntary and voluntary let us consider how far this explanation affects the doctrine of the present chapter now it should seem that the great practical political principle remains as entire as ever still volition and foresight in their strict and accurate construction are inseparable all the most important occasions of our lives are capable of being subjected at pleasure to a decision as nearly as possible perfectly voluntary still it remains true that when the understanding clearly perceives rectitude propriety and eligibility to belong to a certain conduct and so long as it has that perception that conduct will infallibly be adopted a perception of truth will inevitably 
be produced by a clear evidence brought home to the understanding, and the constancy of the perception will be proportioned to the apprehended value of the thing perceived. Reason, therefore, and conviction still appear to be the proper instrument, and the sufficient instrument for regulating the actions of mankind. Having sufficiently established the principle that in all cases of volition we act not from impulse but opinion, there is a further obstacle to be removed before this reasoning can be usefully applied to the subject of political melioration. It may be objected by a person who should admit the force of the above arguments that little was gained by this exposition to the cause it was intended to promote, whether or no the actions of men frequently arise, as some authors have asserted, from immediate impression, it cannot, however, be denied that the perturbations of sense frequently seduce the judgment, and that the ideas and temporary notions they produce are too strong for any force that can be brought against them. But what man is now, in this respect, he will always, to a certain degree, remain. He will always have senses, and in spite of all the attempts which can be made to mortify them, their pleasures will always be accompanied with irritation and allurement. Hence it appears that all ideas of vast and extraordinary improvement in man are visionary, that he will always remain in some degree the dupe of illusion, and that reason and absolute impartial truth can never hope to possess him entire. The first observation that suggests itself upon this statement is that the points already established tend in some degree to set this new question in a clearer light. From them it may now be inferred that the contending forces of reason and sense in the power they exercise over our conduct at least pass through the same medium and assume the same form. It is opinion contending with opinion, and judgment with judgment, and this consideration is not unattended with encouragement. When we discourse of the comparative powers of appetite and reason, we speak of those actions which have the consent of the mind and partake of the nature of voluntary. The question neither is nor deserves to be respecting cases where no choice is exerted and no preference shown. Every man is aware that the cases into which volition enters, either for a part or the whole, are sufficiently numerous to decide upon all that is most important in the events of our life. It follows, therefore, in the contention of sense and reason, it cannot be improbable to hope that the opinion which is intrinsically the best founded shall ultimately prevail. But let us examine a little minutely these pleasures of sense, the attractions of which are supposed to be so irresistible. In reality, they are no way enabled to maintain their hold upon us, but by means of the assiduous of ornaments with which they are assiduously connected. Reduce them to their true nakedness, and they would be generally despised. Where, almost, is the man who would sit down with impatient eagerness to the most splendid feast, the most exquisite viands and highly flavored wines, taste after taste, upheld with kindliest change, if he must sit down alone 
and it were not relieved and insisted by the more exalted charms of society conversation and mutual benevolence strip the commerce of the sexes of all its attendant circumstances and the effect would be similar tell a man that all women so far as sense is concerned are nearly alike bid him therefore take a partner without any attention to the symmetry of her person her vivacity the voluptuous softness of her temper the affectionate kindness of her feelings her imagination or her wit you would probably instantly convince him that the commerce itself which by superficial observers is put for the whole is the least important branch of the complicated consideration to which it belongs it is probable that he who should form himself with the greatest care upon a system of solitary sensualism would come at last to a decision not very different from that which epicurus is said to have adopted in favor of fresh herbs and water from the spring let it be confessed that the pleasures of sense are unimportant and trivial it is next to be asked whether trifling as they are they may not nevertheless possess a delusive and treacherous power by means of which they may often be enabled to overcome every opposition the better to determine this question let us suppose a man to be engaged in the progressive voluptuousness of the most sensual scene here if ever we may expect sensation to be triumphant passion is in this case in its full career he impatiently shuts out every consideration that may disturb his enjoyment moral views and dissuasives can no longer obtrude themselves into his mind he resigns himself without power of resistance to his predominant idea alas in this situation nothing is so easy as to extinguish his sensuality tell him at this moment that his father is dead or that he has lost or gained a considerable sum of money or even perhaps that his favorite horse is stolen from the meadow and his whole passion shall be instantly annihilated so vast is the power of which a mere proposition possesses over the mind of man so conscious are we of the precariousness of the fascination of the senses that upon such occasions we provide against the slightest interruption if our little finger ached we might probably immediately bid adieu to the empire of this supposed almighty power it is said to be an experiment successfully made by sailors and persons in that class of society to lay a wager with their comrades that the sexual intercourse shall not take place between them and their bedfellow the ensuing night and to trust to their veracity for a confession of the event the only means probably by which any man ever succeeds in indulging the pleasures of sense in contradiction to the habitual persuasions of his judgment is by contriving to forget everything that can be offered against him if notwithstanding all his endeavors the unwished-for idea intrudes the indulgence instantly becomes impossible it is to be supposed that the power of sensual allurement which must be carefully kept alive and which the slightest accident overthrows can be invincible 
only to the artillery of reason, and that the most irresistible considerations of justice, interest, and happiness will never be able habitually to control it. To consider this subject in another point of view, it seems to be a strange absurdity to hear men assert that the attractions of sensual pleasure are unresistible, in contradiction to the multiplied experience of all ages and countries. Are all good stories of our nature false? Did no man ever resist a temptation? On the contrary, have not all the considerations which have power over our hopes, our fears, or our weaknesses been, in competition, with a firm and manly virtue, employed in vain? But what has been done may be done again. What has been done by individuals cannot be impossible in a widely different state of society to be done by the whole species. The system we are here combating of the irresistible power of sensual allurements has been numerously supported and a variety of arguments has been adduced in its behalf. Among other things it has been remarked that as the human mind has no innate and original principles, so all the information it has is derived from sensation, and everything that passes within it is either direct impression upon our external organs, or the substance of such impressions modified and refined through certain intellectual strainers and alembics. It is therefore reasonable to conclude that the original substance would be most powerful in its properties, and the pleasures of external sense more genuine than any other pleasure. Every sensation is, by its very nature, accompanied with the idea of pleasure or pain in a vigorous or feeble degree. The only thing which can or ought to excite desire is happiness or agreeable sensation. It is impossible that the hand can be stretched out to obtain anything except so far as it is considered as desirable. And to be desirable is the same thing as to have a tendency to communicate pleasure. Thus, after all the complexities of philosophy are brought back to the simple and irresistible proposition that man is an animal purely sensual. Hence it follows that in all his transactions much must depend upon immediate impression, and little is to be attributed to the generalities of ratiocination. End of section 8